0: Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. As we move ahead in our Royal Failures sermon series, we've covered the names that you may recognize, and today start to get to the names that you might not. We've covered the greatest hits, now we get into the deep cuts. But I would encourage you not to let that intimidate you, being in these parts of the Bible that you might not be familiar with. Rather, I hope that intrigues you. I hope that kind of gains your interest. So we started with Saul, Israel's first king. From there, we covered Absalom, King David's treacherous son, who for all his faults did have a great head of hair. And then last week, we discussed Solomon, arguably Israel's second greatest king. Solomon was uncommonly wise. He built a magnificent temple for God's presence. And during his time on the throne, Israel was on top of the world in just about every way. But in the end, Solomon fell short. He did not worship the Lord with all his heart and all his soul as his father had challenged him and as God had commanded him. Solomon was led astray. He was a royal failure. And as we pick up today, we see the disastrous aftershocks of Solomon's sin that would be felt by the entire nation of Israel. We'll read the same passage starting this morning that we left off with last week. First Kings 11, starting in verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servants. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So two men of great consequence are introduced in those verses. Solomon's servant and Solomon's son. So today we will read about both of them. Jeroboam is the servant. You can call him Joe. And Rehoboam is the son. You can call him Ray. So what lessons might Jeroboam, Joe, and Rehoboam, Ray, what can they teach us? So open up to 1 Kings chapter 11. Feel free to follow along here in the room and on the website or on the live stream as well. But before we go any further, let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. And thank you for your word. Uh, And as we mentioned a moment ago, I pray that this adventure into parts of your word that we probably won't go to naturally on our own, uh, I pray that this would prove fruitful for us. Uh, And that we would see that every bit of your word is useful and profitable and inspired and helpful for us as your people. So teach us from your word this morning, uh, including in these parts of your word that we maybe don't spend a lot of time in. And Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the people in the room. Thank you for the people at home uh, as Craig mentioned earlier, thank you that there may be a light at the end of the tunnel coming, uh, that there is some reason for optimism and reason for hope. And uh, instead of just getting obsessed over how much better things could be or hopefully will be, uh, Lord, we want to take time and stop and thank you uh, for the improvements that we've seen uh, and ask that that would continue. And I pray you'd be with our church this morning, help our worship be honoring to you, Help our time together be beneficial for us. Uh, And Lord, point our eyes to Jesus, uh, even in these texts that seem distant and remote. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the final days of Solomon's reign, the Lord, not circumstance, not coincidence, not chance, but the Lord raised up adversaries against him. A man named Hadad, the Edomite, caused a little bit of trouble. He had an axe to grind dating back to David's days. And another man named Rezin was a source of headaches as well. He ruled over neighboring Syria. But the real problem for Solomon... The most significant adversary the Lord raised against him was his former servant, Jeroboam. His name means something like, contends for justice for the people. So the greatest adversary in Solomon's final days didn't come from without. He came from within. Remember the passage we read just a few moments ago. God said he would tear the kingdom away and give it to who? Give it to Solomon's servant. And sure enough, along comes Jeroboam. One day Jeroboam was traveling down the road, minding his own business, when he met a prophet named Ahijah. And Ahijah tells Jeroboam that he will be given ten tribes of Israel. Only one tribe would be given to someone else. Now, if you're doing the math and saying, wait a minute, there's 12. At that time, two tribes had basically merged into one. You had Judah and Judah and Benjamin merged together. So they really only kind of count as one. But why is it that Jeroboam is going to get these 10 tribes of Israel? Chapter 11, verse 33, God tells us. Because the people have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David, Solomon's father, did. In short, this is happening because of Solomon's sin. Now, why doesn't Jeroboam get all of the tribes? Why does he only get ten? Verses 34 through 36. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you. Ten tribes. Yet to his son, I will give one tribe. That David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. So why does Jeroboam only get ten? In short, because of God's faithfulness to David. But there is a catch for Jeroboam. If Jeroboam truly wants to become royalty... If he wants to be just the first in a long line of kings from his family after him, then he must do what Solomon didn't. Verse 38. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house, as I built for David, And I will give Israel to you. So everything is falling into place for Jeroboam. He's going to rule ten tribes of Israel. He's going to have his own kingdom. And if he obeys the Lord, that kingdom will last. But somehow Solomon finds out about all this. And he tries to get Jeroboam killed. Jeroboam flees to safety in Egypt and simply bides his time. He knows that eventually Solomon will die. And when he does, Jeroboam will be ready. So needless to say, trouble is brewing in God's chosen nation of Israel. There is idol worship everywhere. Adversaries behind every corner. And a mutinous servant from within. A prophet is convinced that the kingdom will split and the God he serves has already promised it. Why? How? Because Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But can anything be done to change Israel's fate? Can this devastation somehow be avoided? Can God's judgment somehow not come down the way he said it would? Well, for that, enter the next king. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Rehoboam, so now we're talking about Solomon's son. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, For he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But Rehoboam abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And Rehoboam said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Charming advice. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It appears that Solomon's wisdom did not rub off on his son Rehoboam, whose name ironically means something to the effect of he who enlarges the people. Not really what he's going to do, is it? By the time Rehoboam became king, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel were disgruntled. They were essentially going on strike. And who's standing at the front of the picket line? None other than our old friend Jeroboam. He's doing what comes naturally to him, contending for justice for the peoples. But the arrogant, brash, King Rehoboam felt the need to prove himself tough. He flexed his muscle against his own people like a tyrant. He exploits them rather than listening to them. And to use an ancient Israelite proverb, that's when the you-know-what hits the fan. Not actually ancient Israelite, but you get the point. The kingdom of Israel... The chosen people of God, a light for the nations, God's representatives on earth, freed from slavery in Egypt, escorted by God himself into the promised land. The glorious nation of Israel is now divided. Not long ago, Israel was a powerhouse, a blessing to all of God's people, a blessing to really the whole world. But now they have degenerated into civil war. We have Israel in the north, ten tribes led by Jeroboam. And we have Judah in the south, with the rest led by Rehoboam. But thankfully, before blood is shed, God intervenes. But his promised judgment on Solomon has been fulfilled. The damage has been done. God's chosen nation is now two. And why? Because Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a man named Jesus would say roughly 1,000 years later, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Now, as for our two kings, Jeroboam, and Rehoboam, they both proved to be royal failures in their own unique ways. Jeroboam, the supposed virtuous and heroic contender for justice for the peoples. He proves to be no better than Solomon, the king he rebelled against. When his power appears to be in jeopardy, he gives the people false gods. He sets up a new capital away from Jerusalem. God's chosen city. He appoints illegitimate priests. And he rejects the prophets that God sends him. Remember what God had promised Jeroboam. If he would listen to God's commands, walk in his ways, and do what is right in his eyes, Jeroboam would have a dynasty. But instead... Jeroboam did whatever he devised in his heart. He would ultimately reign 22 years before he died. But for future kings of Israel, the phrase walking in the ways of Jeroboam would become shorthand for wickedness. But what about our boy Rehoboam down south? He who enlarges the people. Well, he and his two tribes didn't fare much better than the north. Like his father before him, Rehoboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. While Solomon's wisdom didn't rub off on his son, his idolatry did. In that case, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. The man who felt the need to show the world how much stronger he was than his father, outdoes his father in sin... And nothing else. So we've got two royal failures this morning. Three, if you count Solomon, in one sermon. Talk about bang for your buck. But what do we learn from these men? Both practically and theologically. Let's start with the practical lessons. One from each man. Our first lesson comes from Solomon. And it's this. The effects of our lives, our virtues, our vices, for better or for worse, can live on long after we are gone. Solomon did not live to see the kingdom divided. But the worldly consequences of his sin had a massive impact on those after him. His son learned from his example, and generations of his people would suffer as a result of the patterns that he set. Now, that's not to say that God holds people unjustly accountable for the sins of others. But it is to say that one person's actions, one person's words can have a positive or negative ripple effect on those around them and those after them. We may suffer as a result of other people's sins. We may be blessed as a result of other people's righteousness. And likewise, other people may suffer from the sins that we commit. Other people can be blessed by the obedience and the worship that we perform. The point is that the effects of our lives, the results... The examples, the patterns of our love for God or lack thereof, that can live on long after we are gone. The second practical lesson comes from Jeroboam, and it's this. Just because someone is chosen by God and used by God doesn't mean that they're holy. Jeroboam was. Chosen by God. He was used by God. There's no denying that in the story. But that doesn't mean Jeroboam is holy. It doesn't mean he's worthy of imitation. Some of you may have heard of the recent scandal involving the late famous Christian apologist, Robbie Zacharias. He made a career out of defending the philosophical and moral legitimacy of the Christian faith. Countless believers were helped by his words and by his resources. In that sense, Ravi Zacharias was undeniably used by God. But Rabbi Zacharias was still a sinner. Something that became painfully and dramatically clear after his death. He had used his power and his reputation to abuse and exploit many women... Over many years. The point is. There are times when God uses people. For his purposes. And good things may come as a result. But that doesn't mean. That person is holy. Doesn't mean that person. Is worthy of imitation. God sometimes. Uses wicked people. To accomplish his good intentions. But that does not. Absolve those people of the consequences of their actions, and it doesn't make them worthy of imitation. The third practical lesson comes from, of course, Rehoboam. It's one that's simple on its face, but is worth remembering. It's the value of listening to those older and wiser than you. A great deal of suffering and conflict came about when Rehoboam failed to heed the guidance of those more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more mature than him. Rehoboam followed the guidance of yes-men, kicked a hornet's nest, and cemented his legacy as a royal failure. Whether you're a king or a servant... An Old Testament Israelite or a modern day Christian living in ancient Jerusalem or contemporary fishers, there is great wisdom in listening to those older and wiser than you. Those people may be in this room. So that's some of the practical, more moral lessons of our text today, but what are some theological lessons? Namely, what does this story teach us about God? Well, first, we see God's judgment at work in this story. Solomon's accomplishments, and we highlighted just how vast they were last week. They could not save him from God's judgment for his sin. Eventually, even if Solomon didn't live to see all of the on-the-ground outworkings of it, God's judgment was fulfilled. And of course, we can say with certainty that Solomon did face God's judgment at his death. But we're not certain what the verdict was. Unless you think this idea of God's judgment is just some antiquated and embarrassing quirk that we have to deal with when we read the Old Testament. It features prominently in the New Testament as well. Jesus talks about God's judgment at length. Jesus dies on the cross bearing God's judgment for sins. And the Apostle Paul warns in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, that God will not be mocked. God is a righteous judge, both then and now. Second theological lesson is that we see God's sovereignty at work in this story. Who pronounced judgment on Solomon? The Lord. Who raised up adversaries? The Lord. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 15? It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. The events we've read about this morning were not strokes of luck. They were not a combination of random factors. They were not good or bad breaks. They were brought about by the Lord. Our God is sovereign over history, even when we can't see or understand how or why. But we do know that he's good. And the third theological lesson is that we see God's faithfulness in the story. Over and over again, God reaffirms his commitment and his promise to David. David. He won't split the kingdom in Solomon's days because of his faithfulness to David. He won't tear away the entire kingdom because of his faithfulness to David. He won't abandon Jerusalem permanently because of his faithfulness to David. Solomon's descendants will suffer as a result of his sin, but not forever because of God's faithfulness to David. We worship a God who keeps his word. He honors his commitments. He fulfills his promises. His love for his people is steadfast. In a world of faithlessness, God is faithful. In the New Testament, many were waiting for the Messiah to come to restore the earthly political kingdom of Israel. The one split in the days of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Why? Because they believed he would be faithful to David. He promised David that he would have a son on the throne forever, that he would build him a house. And that's what the Messiah would come to do. Well, the kingdom never really would truly come back together the way it was before. Israel would eventually be exiled to Assyria, and Judah would be exiled to Babylon. And when those exiles finally came to an end, what would be left could hardly be called a kingdom. But the Messiah, Jesus, the son of David, he comes and he brings something better than a return to the good old days of the united kingdom of David and Solomon. He tells Pilate in John 18, verse 36, that his kingdom is not of this world. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, 13 and 14 that God has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we read in Hebrews twelve twenty eight that believers in Jesus have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Worldly kingdoms, nations and powers come and go. They unite and they divide, they rise and they fall. But Christians have an eternal kingdom that will never die, will never split, and will never be led astray. Founded by a king who has never and will never fail. And all who believe in him, his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his bodily resurrection... All who believe in him are forgiven of their sins, adopted as children, and reconciled to the just, sovereign, and faithful God we've read about this morning. That is better than any kingdom, any border, any nation, any power that this world can think of. That is better than anything that the royal failures we're reading about in this sermon series— better than anything they could ever offer. So may we worship that king and thank him for that kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the truth that even though kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and nations come and nations go and... Powers grow and powers shrink in worldly terms. You remain the same. That's the message of the book of Daniel. That's the message of much of what we're reading in this sermon series. It's a message that we need to be reminded of. So Lord, remind us this, that whatever is happening in the kingdom that we live in right now, all the chaos, all the division, all the frustration, ultimately remind us that while we might live in this kingdom right now, this kingdom is not truly our home. And while we might have worldly rulers above us who are successes or failures in all kinds of different ways, remind us of who our true king is. Thank you that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that will not be shaken, founded and led and secured by a king who has not been shaken and will not be shaken. Even when he died on the cross, he was not shaken. He is alive, he is ruling, he is reigning. One day he will return, and that promise will not be shaken either. So Lord, thank you for the kingdom that we get to be a part of, thanks to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Thank you that our salvation, our eternal well-being is not based on People like Solomon is not based on people like Jeroboam, is not based on people like Rehoboam. But our salvation is based on you. And you are just, you are sovereign, you are faithful. And Lord, we can trust you. Give us a heart to worship you. Give us a mind to follow you. We love you. We honor you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.